Too many days in the darkness. Welcome to Provisioner's Cure, brought to you by Precure.com, the podcast where we challenge mainstream conventional medicine and look to the latest science and practice around the things that really make us healthy. We dive deeper into what you can do to prevent, manage disease, to have a long and healthy life. This podcast aims to be right on the cutting edge with the best scientists and practitioners in their fields in the world. Prevention is Cure. I'm your host, Professor Grant Schofield. Hi, Grant here. In this podcast, I interview Jess Dyson, who's really an expert in disordered eating and coaching people out of that. Now, this isn't an area I've really paid much attention to, mainly because I've been quite scared of engaging in that. We're talking about anorexia, bulimia, these types of things, and they come with all sorts of issues. And frankly, the therapies that have been offered over the years haven't been very successful. In fact, uh, I remember when I was a young psychologist working in Australia, uh, one of the clinical psychologists there asked me to come and talk to a patient of his, a young woman who had anorexia and she was hospitalized at that time and he felt that I was an athlete and I you know, ate food for energy and this woman had some issues about over-exercising and what the, you know, I might be able to help her. You know, I talked to her, I don't think I made much progress. And then a couple of months later, I said to Robert, the psychologist, oh, what happened to Sunset, the patient? He goes, oh, oh yeah, she died. Uh, and that sort of hung with me and it's an area we haven't talked about. But I think you'd be surprised once you start to talk about um, the range of disordered eating, uh, and then that starts to include binge eating disorder, which has some addiction and other uh, issues as well. Um, it's pretty prevalent in the population. So what we can do about that uh, and how we can coach people into that and how a coaching model can fit is just super interesting. And I think you're really going to enjoy my time with Jess and learning more about this area. Enjoy. Hi, welcome to the Prevention is Cure podcast with me, Professor Grant Schofield, and I'm really excited today to be joined by Jess Dyson, who's a health coach who specialised in eating disorders or disorder eating. We'll try and figure out that too. Hi, Jess. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm, I'm both really nervous and really excited to be delving into this topic. It's one that scared me my whole professional life. Yeah. Uh, and I was just before we started the podcast, I was relaying a story. Uh, when I was a young psychologist and I had nothing to do with eating disorders or any of that clinical work, but uh, the clinical psych guy in my program said, can you come and talk to a young woman with an eating disorder? Um, she's really into her sport and you're into your sport and you feel like this and you just explain what you're doing. For what it's worth, I went and uh, I asked him a couple of months later how she was going and he goes, oh, oh, she died. And yeah. And there was just a silence, uh, and that's been why I've been so scared of it. Can you tell me more yeah. about about the backstory of eating disorders and why we should take it seriously? Eating disorders are something which, like like we were talking about before we pressed record on this, like they're not talked about, they're not known about. I had no idea before I personally went through an eating disorder what it was. I used to see people in magazines and be like, just eat. Why wouldn't you eat? Um, but it is one of the things which has the highest mortality rate out of any mental illness. Um, and that contributes to a lot of suicide statistics. 
um, and attempted suicides as well. And so I saw, I saw some stats said just what it said that ten percent of people with an eating disorder mm. will die from it, and twenty five percent will attempt suicide. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of people, if they don't get the right help and treatment, um, will live with it for the rest of their life. Um, and it's not something you want to live with for the rest of your life either. Um, so it promises people the world, um, but really robs them of everything. Um, and so we work with lots of different people, lots of different ages, and their whole lives are massively impacted. It's like this glorified thing in society, but it literally people can't hold down jobs, or if they can, like it's that constantly thinking about food and their body and horrible horrible thoughts and guilt and anxiety and everything that goes with it um and it isolates people as well so it just has this massive impact of just devastation just on the individual but also on families um so yeah it's really sad and it is a mental illness to take seriously because it's impacting so many people across the world um and a lot of people in yeah, a lot of high school girls as well in New Zealand, but also guys, it doesn't discriminate. And then a lot of people with transgender also make up statistics of eating disorders too. So we don't even think about it being a male thing at all. Um, and I think prevalence is, so far as I can tell, is twice as high in young women than young mm. men, but but it still exists in young, yeah. young men, right? Yeah, yeah. We have an um, amazing recovery coach at Redefine Coaching. His name's Jeff, and he had anorexia for about 10 years before he recovered um and he was in and out of psych units and everything over in the states um and he has just an amazing message of hope now um and he works since having him he works with a lot of guys now as well so yeah it is impacting people i guess guys just actually don't come forward with it or people don't recognize it all mm. the time in them as well so mm. so you mentioned that you were diagnosed with an eating disorder at, uh, at some stage i think uh, from looking at your bio and your website, that was around your mid adolescence. Do you mind talking about that a little bit about that journey and how how that even happens? How do you realise that something's not right? And and what are you thinking? I think that's like you mentioned that before. Mm. Someone who hasn't got it is like, well, just eat more. Mm. Obviously, obviously, if it was anything that resembled that as a solution, we wouldn't have such a horrific problem. Yeah, totally. So for me. Um... I literally remember that conversation with a friend. I think it was Mary-Kate and Ashley I saw in a magazine. And I was like, why can't they just eat? They should just eat. I could never, ever do that. And it was literally about a year later I found myself in a place. Um, and I was with my friends and they made a comment about my weight. And for me, I'd always grown up um, with my sisters being told how beautiful we were. Um, like people would stop us and everything like that. And so it became a whole identity. Um, and I didn't realize it was my whole identity, but being beautiful was the thing I was um, felt like the thing I was good at because I hadn't really discovered anything else about me yet. Um, anyway, so a friend made a comment. So, so wait, people way. would stop you and your sisters just uh, along the way, like at the shopping mall or something. Yeah, yeah, all the time. And wow. people think that's probably a positive thing, but it was did a lot of damage because it built up this whole identity and this is what we're good at and this is what people say. And we get praise off this. So when someone said something contrary to that, um, it had a massive impact and kind of shattered my whole identity. And so when I looked in the mirror, I no longer saw myself as beautiful, but I began to see myself um, as ugly and disgusting, felt embarrassed, felt ashamed of myself. And I thought I could fix my body. 
And so for me, I did what a lot of teenage girls do and I went on a diet. And so I cut out all different sorts of things and started exercising and I started getting a lot of praise for it. So a lot of people are like, oh, you're looking really good. Ah, good on you. And I felt good too, Um, which was awesome. But it was like this moment, it just went, and it literally went from this really good thing to I have no idea what's going on. And it went from me being in control to me being completely out of control um, and almost having like a bully inside my head and telling me what I had to do, telling me how much exercise I had to do, what I could and couldn't eat. And if I went against it, the thoughts were excruciating. Um, so horrible thoughts of like, people won't like you if you do this or if you don't do this or you're disgusting or you're fat or you're ugly. And so if I ate something, I could see myself completely different in the mirror afterwards. And um, yeah, and all the feelings of guilt and anxiety and shame and embarrassment would flood in. And it was awful. And so, well, it was like all those things are a fear response to because food becomes your fear. But actually there's bigger fears behind that. The fears of a lot of people are really scared of getting out of control because they feel in control with the eating disorder, even though their eating disorder is in control. Or people get really scared of judgment or people won't like me anymore. I'll be abandoned or all these sorts of different things. And so when you do the opposite to what your eating disorder says, you have this massive fear response. Um, which is terrifying. And what do we do in human nature? We run away from fears, which pushes you towards your end sort of constantly. And for me, what happened was with anorexia, I didn't even know it was anorexia because I didn't know what anorexia was. Um, but more and more and more, my world just shrunk and more and more and more what I could eat. And the exor- so exercise increased all the time. Food shrunk, shrunk, shrunk. And rules became more and behaviors around food, like having to heat it up a certain amount of times or this or that became more and it was just all consuming um I could look at something and know exactly how many calories were in it um and my parents noticed what was happening um and so they took me to a doctor and I got a diagnosis of anorexia um but I didn't believe it I really didn't believe it I knew something was wrong I didn't believe I had anorexia Mm. I was like I don't have anorexia um and I think because you're so because of the body image distortion too, you don't see it because you don't think you match being skinny enough or sick enough. So you don't believe that you're struggling with anorexia. So for me, I was like, I'm not skinny enough. Um, but me, my story is so, yeah, was at doctors and got really, really unwell to the point where my body was shutting down. I was having to get blood tests multiple times a week. I was, um, my kidneys were failing. And I really had no life. Like it kept promising me like people will like you. People praise like, you know, like this amazing thing, which people think it is sometimes in society. Um, But it robbed me of everything. It impacted family relationships. I got, I couldn't focus at school. I'd still get good grades, but I couldn't focus. Um, And how long until this are you now? So from from that time that you first started going, hey, you know what, I'm going to try some Mm. dieting to Mm. to this one's situation you talk about now how long was that over like a few months yeah it was literally a few months um so my whole world and my whole family's world changed so fast um yeah and so I just remember being so hopeless because I really didn't see a way out um it felt too hot like I wanted to recover but this thought I used to have a picture of the well Jess 
And I'd look at that every day to remind myself, I don't want to go back there. I don't want to have that body again. That's disgusting. That's embarrassing. I don't want to feel those feelings. And so the fear of recovery um, outweighed staying where I was. Wait, so, so you I had a like, picture of yourself at a at a healthy weight, health, healthy weight, healthy mind, and you put that there as an incentive not to go back to that. Mm, wow. Yeah. And so every day I'd look at it and be like, I'm not doing that. And the fear outweighed. So I know people are like, oh, but wouldn't life be better without your eating disorder? And yes, a hundred million percent it is. But when you're in it, you can't see that. And I was still, even though I was literally nearly on my deathbed, I was getting compliments from people of, I wish I was as skinny as you. You look so good. And so it fuels the eating disorder. And so um, it felt safer to stay in this awful place, being bullied 24-7 with awful emotions than the emotions of anxiety and guilt and actually getting better. But a turning point for me was I got exercise taken off me. I got everything taken off me and had no life. Um, and I went to a hip hop audition secretly behind everyone's back because I wanted to be able to secretly exercise. I wasn't a dancer, but I ended up getting into this hip hop crew. Um, and it became something I was really passionate about. And so we went to regionals. We didn't get wildcard. We didn't get internationals, but on the day where I was meant to go to hospital was the day my hip hop crew got wildcarded through the nationals. And it was like this turning point for me because I remember sitting in the doctor's office thinking, do I want to go to hospital and just sit there and be forced to eat and no one even cares? Like no one cares that I'm there. Like my family cares, but like mm. everyone else lives a life, whereas I'm in hospital. Or do I actually want to try and fight this thing and actually go on and live a life without it and go to nationals? And nationals was that greater purpose for me. Like I'm a big believer people have to have a greater purpose to fight for than mean skinny. Mm. Um, and so it was like that moment of I'm going to fight. And anorexia had a backup plan. It was like just put on weight, go to nationals, and I'll lose it all afterwards. That was the backup plan. Um, so I'd be <laughs> so to my doctor. It's that still was, pathological, right? But Oh, exactly, exactly. But it was like you can go to nationals. You don't have to go to hospital. And yeah. so my doctor was literally there filling out the forms for hospital, and I begged her and I was just like please don't send me to hospital can I go to nationals I'll do whatever it takes and she was like you have to put on a certain amount of weight in this amount of time to be able to go and I literally just remember going home and having food and it was like my worst fear and I know people that people can't understand this unless you've actually been through it it's really hard to understand how could food actually be a fear but it was literally my worst fear and I'd have tears just streaming down my face and I'd have a journal there writing down all the thoughts of what the eating disorder was saying. Things like, you're ugly, you're disgusting, you shouldn't eat this, you're going to get fat, no one's going to like you. And I'd just replace it and be like, actually, I'm not going to get fat. Like food doesn't mean fat or food doesn't mean out of control or food doesn't mean people don't like me. And I just replace it with what could be the truth, even though it felt so wrong. And I made it to nationals and that year my crew um, won the hip hop competition. And I literally just remember being like, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back to this life of nothing where I'm stuck. And so I didn't go along with anorexia's backup plan and I kept fighting. Um, and for me, that looked like targeting exercise, like how do I reduce it? Um, and, and something I've realized it's all about like exercise is a really good thing, but when you have an eating disorder, it's not. It's mm -hmm. this thing which controls you and um, it's, emotion it's fear driven there's emotions it's 
not enjoyable. It's punishment. Um, and so not, I had you're to not, honest... you're not doing the actual exercise and going, this is, I'm having, there's no fun in it at all when you're actually doing Well, it. sometimes, like, I think you trick yourself that this is fun, this is enjoyable, because it's that relief of you uh, escaping the fear, escaping the thought. So you do get this rush and you do get this relief. Yeah, right. Like, oh. But it's like. It takes a negative thought away. Yeah, yeah it takes a negative thought, a negative emotion away. But yet those only get stronger. And then more anxiety gets attached to it and more negative thinking gets attached to it. So it's really challenging it. And I had to go on this whole journey of rediscovering what's normal, what's healthy, um, rediscovering how to actually not, I don't think you ever go to a place of loving your body, but it's accepting your body and being thankful for your body and what it can actually do for you. Um, it's not like you ever get to the place where you look in the room and be like, oh, hot damn. But it's not about that. It's literally about like, how do I actually accept who I am? And discover who I am and have that greater purpose in my life than being skinny. And actually, the more and more I got better, the more I like almost built up evidence against my eating disorder that the fears that it held me captive in were never coming true. Like I actually got more friendships. I got more like things like everything I desired, which I thought I could have in my eating disorder, I got out of it. Like I was the one in control. Eating disorder wasn't in control anymore, even though I thought I was in control in it. I wasn't, and I was in control. I got to have a healthier relationship with exercise where I can actually enjoy it. I can eat and actually be in control. And it's not going from this place of rules within eating disorder to out of control. It's actually, I'm in control. I create boundaries around food now, and I get to enjoy it, and I get to be social with it and all those sorts of different things. So freedom's really good. Um, and then, What are the parts just, just to, to this? Like, mm. you know, one thing I've worry about when I start talking to people about eating disorders is that quite a common route to it is not the one that you've had, which is, oh, you're so beautiful, you're this. It's actually trauma and yeah. control is taken away. And you, I assume you've seen this in your work much more than me. And so mm-hmm. people start to want to find something that they can control and it happens to be their body, food, and, and often exercise. And, of course, you yeah. start delving into that world. That's a, another whole world again. Is, is, that a, is that a common round or do you see a similar route to what you've had or is it all of the above? All of the above. Everyone's story is different. Yeah. Um, for a lot of girls, it starts through bullying and bullying around weight. Um, and it starts with dieting or doing a group diet with their friends or their parents or something like that, and then it just gets taken too far and they just lose control. But for other right, but, people, but like, is it, there's not a this. I can't imagine there's a teenage girl on the planet that, well, at least in the in the Western world, that hasn't been on a diet of some sort. Mm. Right? But, but those don't all turn bad. No, they don't all turn bad um, yeah. at all. But for like for anorexia, you actually have to have a gene to be able to get it, um, and so not everyone can actually get anorexia. Um, right. And it's this kind of perfect storm of how people get it. So you have to there's normally a stress factor going on in life whether that's something like lockdown or school or bullying or something like that um you then have to have a calorie deficit um and then there's weight loss and it just flicks this gene into action and what it actually does is it reverses your body so instead of being rewarded for being hungry oh for being full you get rewarded for being hungry um, and so it really reverses your biology. And so, and then what happens is as you lose weight, your body obviously shuts down things like hormones and 
hunger signals. So people actually don't feel hungry sometimes. Um, so not so no one chooses to go into an eating disorder at all, but they can find themselves in it. Um, but no, people, a lot of trauma, a lot of PTSD, a lot of people get bullied um, and it is that control thing. I mean, people have all sorts of different stories and backgrounds and everything like that, which contributes to it. People with anorexia normally are more people who are, have more like anxiety and OCD as well on the side or different things and are high achievers um, and they want this perfect image as well in life. Like, So having the perfect body fits that and feeling in control and superior and stuff sometimes as well so, so but everyone does OCD, is so does OCD you most always go with it like some of a lot of what you were describing was quite OCD like right with your mm. um yeah so a lot of people have OCD tendencies not everyone has a diagnosis but tendencies and then there's um a lot of people with who get anorexia too yeah have can be diagnosed with anxiety too so yeah more of those sorts of people are the ones who get anorexia itself so i want to take a step back and talk about some of these statistics because i i just went and revisited them uh and looked at the published literature and the estimates of who gets a diagnosis and then we'll talk about the three different types of eating disorders uh, frankly i was i didn't even believe it when i first read it and so i think if you take together the lifetime prevalence of of anorexia nervosa at about 0.8 of a percent the lifetime prevalence of bulimia nervosa at about 1.8% and the lifetime prevalence of binge eating disorder at about 2.4%. That's about 4.8% of the population, adult population, that's going to have those disorders at some point. Uh, if you sort of work backwards in New Zealand or Australia, I sort of assumed there was 4 million uh, uh, adults in New Zealand and 16 million in Australia. That's, that's 130-something thousand adults and New Zealand, and that's 750,000 in Australia, where you are. Uh, and then only a proportion of those will actually get a full medical diagnosis. So it'll be about 6% of that. So the rest of those will go on with some sort of lifetime problem that they never really resolve. What do you make of all those statistics? They're very real and they're very sad statistics. Like, yeah. And I think the key thing with the eating disorder is, um, I mean, you never want anyone to get an eating disorder, but um, if you can get onto it early with treatment, people have a higher recovery rate. Um, and unfortunately, I think people don't really know what eating disorders are. Um, and so people don't always get the help that they need. But also what's happened is, I mean, there's been lockdowns which have caused trauma for people or exercise and food became something they can control so seeing statistics just rise um and mm -hmm. our health systems and everything have not been ready um to actually be able to help those people so then people have sat on waiting lists deteriorating and not getting the help they needed um and so it's yeah so a lot of people can't access the support that they need at the moment and people are deteriorating, people are ending up in hospital, parents are feeling so hopeless. Um, even for adults, just, yeah, people are just really, really struggling and not getting the support that they need. And getting sometimes they'll go see someone who's not equipped in an eating disorder. Um, and um, if you don't understand eating disorders, if you don't have training around it, 
it's really hard to help someone and really hard to understand it. And so they probably do more damage than good as well. So people aren't getting those, the support, which is just, yeah, we get people reaching out to us every day um, because they're struggling and they can't access well, support. I've got so many questions to ask you about all that. But before we do that, can we just talk about the the sort of three main types of Let's talk about anorexia and nervosa, which you've talked about a bit with your own story. So, and then we'll talk about yeah. bulimia. The most of them will talk about binge eating disorder and what, what the sort of features of those are and how how they're different. Yeah. So anorexia, let's talk about anorexia. So anorexia, so there's actually um, three different types. Um, so there's anorexia, anorexia restricting subtype um, where people have to meet a certain weight requirement um, as well as there's so there's low body weight for their age their sex all those sorts of different things um there's food restriction there is intense fear of gaining weight or becoming fat um and there's also like body image distortion and so there's restriction and there can be exercise there's not always exercise for everyone um so that's kind of anorexia so you've got strong cognitions as well um and along with and pe- that but people be- people are basically going to restrict eating up exercise they're going to be in a severe calorie deficit uh, yeah, that foods yeah. that food's never even going to go in in the first place yeah i mean people with anorexia do eat sometimes like they can just have really weird eating patterns so now you can't they might have a calorie limit and so you might actually even see someone with anorexia eat mcdonald's if it meets that calorie limit but it's uh, that calorie deficit or they might yeah. burn it off or they do something to compensate or say so if they do eat um, they might not eat for a couple of days. So there's all these different behaviors which go with it. Um, but it's all that compensation, yeah, calorie deficit, low body weight, strong cognitions, body image distortion, intense fear of gaining weight. Then what you've got is you've got um, anorexia, which has the subtype of purging. Um, and so this is where people, this is different to bulimia. Um, so this is, again, low body weight, um, all the restriction, compensation, thoughts and everything. People might have a little bit of food, but then they compensate and they purge. Um, and they can actually, in people with anorexia can end, with this diagnosis can end up in this binge purging cycle. So they might actually allow themselves to eat, um, but then they purge it. And so they're still in that severe calorie deficit and low body weight, intense for gaining weight, cognitions, all of that. Um, so how, and then you how, also, how's that different from binge eating and bulimia then? Um, bulimia, a lot of people don't have that massive calorie deficit yeah, and they do eat, whereas this is like, I'll eat a little bit and I'll purge it. Um, so that's kind of the difference. Um, or, I mean, a lot of people with anorexia purging, which allows them to kind of binge, isn't always a binge. It might just be something really little. Or it might be, yeah, different things. Um, maybe something little, or they just really have that severe calorie deficit and that low body weight. Um, then you have atypical anorexia, which a lot of people actually don't know about. Um, and that is when people are actually at a healthy body weight, but they have anorexia. So they have all the cognitions, all the like, all the feelings, emotions, the intense fears all the behaviors, but their body weight is actually a healthy body weight or considered a healthy body weight. And this can happen when people obviously come from what you'd call probably a higher healthy weight for them. 
Um, and then they're actually at this still healthy body weight. Um, so that's that, um, which a lot of people don't know about. Then you have, um, there's actually another eating disorder, which you didn't mention called ARFID. Have you heard of that one before? No. I've, I've heard of it. I have no idea what it is. Can you just help me out? So it's avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. Um, and it only got in the DSM, how many years ago? Maybe five years ago. Um, and before that, a lot of people didn't know they were struggling with it, but it's more like sensory and taste and there's no fear of gaining weight. Um, but people are very malnourished because they don't get the food intake that they actually need. Um, I don't know heaps about it, but yeah, people can look it up and actually you can, if you type ARFID in DSM, you can actually learn more about it, but it is, uh, eating disorder, which really impacts people socially too. Um, and there's a real intense fear of food, but not for weight reasons, just for sensory and taste and all those sorts of things. So the key to helping people with that is exposure and exposure and exposure and doing sensory work with them. Um, but yeah, it really impacts people. When it first came out, we had guys who were in their sixties ringing saying, this is what I've had my whole life. And I had no idea, um, what it even was. Yeah. And so they were like, but it's ruined my life. So, um, there's that. Then you have bulimia, um, which is like a binge eating episode. Um, so it's eating within a short period of time, um, like a two hour period, an amount of food that's larger than what most individuals would eat um, in any kind of similar circumstances. It's a sense of lack of control over eating as well during the episode. So feeling that you can't stop um, or that you're completely out of control. Um, and then you have like different behaviors to try and compensate for it so whether that's like laxatives or self-induced purging or medications or fasting or excessive exercise um and that happens at least once a week for three months um and yeah there's also the, all the thoughts and all those sorts of things but, but it could it's i don't believe it it's worse but at least because I've, I've i've known a couple of young women who've had that i mean it, it could get they could purge it every meal right yeah, 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 yeah. Which has yeah. a massive impact on people's body. So it, yeah. bulimia is awful. It's just as awful as anorexia and robs so many people of their life. Um, and and I get probably worse in many ways because because you, you end up with other like really bad side effects, like uh, really bad oral health because your teeth are, are now uh, corroded yeah. by that by the stomach acid and these sorts of things, and you know, yeah, no no ability to deal with that. So no, yeah. And it impacts, yeah, it impacts so much. Um, so there's that. Um, and then you have binge eating disorder. To be honest, I don't, I personally don't work with binge eating disorder, but obviously it's the feeling out of control and binges in a certain amount of time and um, there's no compensatory behaviors. So, yeah, it's awful. There's horrible, horrible, horrible emotions which go with binge eating disorder for people and horrible thoughts and then their body obviously changes um, so a massive thing to help people with that is regular eating and actually including all food groups in their diet so that they're not restricting and then like a certain food and then binging on it later at night. Uh, okay. So, so you could end up with actually a, a real weight problem and, and putting on lots of weight with binge eating disorder. Yeah. 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 I, I wonder how that, is that different from people who say oh, I've got a food addiction or, or with that sort of thing, you know, or particular types of food that they... Mm. They, they will just... it's more this emotional like it's more um again i don't know heaps about it 
but like they just can't stop. So they can feel so physically sick that they can't stop. Um, and I think, yeah, it's just awful. So it is different to like that food addiction. I'd say it's more emotionally driven. It can sometimes even be like this punishment inflicted thing as well. So, um, yeah. You know, what's really interesting to me because I've also spent most of my life in the, in the endurance sport community, mm. uh, you know, Ironman triathlons and bonus and stuff is that in every single aspect of those things you're talking about, um, are, are things that happen in that community to, I suppose, to much lesser extent, right? So you do want to control your weight because that affects how you race. Um, the, the body image in the sport is one of being lean and pretty angular. Uh, the, and, and low in body fat, uh, you definitely need energy on occasions and you absolutely go for it. Uh, you definitely compensate yeah. with, with you know, long rides or more exercise. Uh, you could have periods where you're not training very well and your eating just gets a little bit out of control and you put on lots of weight. So you can sort of see there's, uh, I suppose, sub-pathological aspects or maybe the sport just allows that to to happen. I don't, yeah. I don't know what, what I'm asking other than that then there are, there are other communities that, that sort of facilitate some of that as well. And I'd say the big thing, sometimes the big difference is the motive behind it. Mm. The motive um, and also the mindset behind it and whether you're actually in control. Because I guess mm. when you've got something like anorexia, it appears like you're doing all the same things, but you're not in control. It's this fear-driven mm. thing, whereas actually yours is a purpose-driven thing. Yeah. Yeah, so like, the behaviors which, might look the same, but there's a fundamental difference that you're pointing out there, right? Yeah. As, as you're, yeah. you're out of control and you haven't got the yeah. control. Yeah, you haven't got this, the control, whereas this, you guys have the control to choose. That's yeah. true, and, and it might be weird to other people, but it's it still happens. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So yeah, I think it's the it's the like the thoughts as well yeah. as the fear, the anxiety, the guilt, and all that, which you guys wouldn't get in that. And everyone's going to struggle with body image to some degree, but I guess when you have body image with an eating disorder, it's distortion. People really don't know what they look like. Um, and they can see very different images all the time, depending on what they've eaten, depending on the time of day, depending on so many different things. And there's this self-hate and loathing and mm -hmm. everything, which and just horrible feelings which go with it. Whereas other people might just have a bad body image day and be like, oh, I just feel fat today. But we know fat's not a feeling and there's feelings behind that. But it's just like it's not this life-changing thing which then they're going to go and change everything in their life for um mm. hey so so let's talk about the mental health system and and care and that we talk about a mental health crisis and i but i i suppose when i look at this i think this is at the pointy end of a having tried to get people help so one thing that we talk about is the treatment gap there's really not enough psychologists or psychiatrists uh, or, or other people there probably won't be we can't train them fast enough, um, but even then the model of care seems to be not appropriate. But then if you go into eating disorders, mm. it's virtually a user-pay situation. And at least in New Zealand, you know, options that people have, they tend to go, to, I, I can't remember the name of the place, it's down in the South Island near with a hot, uh, near Hamna Springs. Uh, is, it's quite a well-known place, and I know a young woman that went there, and it literally costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. Ashburn? Um, 
Yes. Is that, yeah. is that the one? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. and as I understand it, that's not uncommon. And people may go overseas to do that. Is that, is that your experience that people have done that? Yeah, 100%. 100%. I think um, there's a lot of people in the public system which are trained, which mean well, um, and they're awesome people and they're awesome professionals and they just want to help. But I think that they don't, they don't have eating disorder. Like because because of the crisis which has happened, a lot of people have burnt out. So then a lot of people, like there's people who get it and are trained in it, and there's people who are trained but they really don't understand or probably have the training they need to support people. And so therefore, a lot of people, or there's this whole just get people weight restored and turn them over, and they don't do any of the long term work which is actually needed to be done. And so then people relapse. Um, and so you just end up with this cycle happening for people. Um, and a lot of people have probably given up on the public system, which is really sad. Um, and they go to private places. Look, you can go residential, which is private, which costs people thousands every day. That's the fact. Um, residential, I think, is kind of where more people are at a crisis, like, and they're really needing that. 24-7 support and they can't get that at home um but again I haven't always seen residential fix like really like because I guess it institutionalizes people but mm, then they have to you come still, you out you've got to go home and to you still got to go home and then they can't because they haven't done those things in their normal environment and there's often no follow-up support people go home and relapse um and so they really need if there is that there needs to be a really good follow-up plan, which a lot of these places are understaffed, under-resourced, so that doesn't happen. So people relapse and go back in. And you end up with this cycle of going back in, going back home, going back in, going back home, which is very real for a lot of people. Um, there's a lot of amazing private clinics. Um, like you've got New Zealand Eating Sort of Clinic. You've got Shelley Beach. Um, people go to Nurture as well. And I think there's this new practice as well in um, Parnell. I can't exactly remember what it's called with um, people who specialize in eating disorders. So a lot of people are going there, but even all of them have wait lists and they can't get in. Um, but those wait lists so, could literally be several months long, right, Jess? Yeah. And so if you think about it, if you think someone's already a low weight, say a teenager, they're a low weight, parents don't know how to support them because you just don't know because it's like, you literally kind of have to go through like the treatment that they do at that age as you re as parents, you become tasked with refeeding, but how do you refeed your teenage daughter who's been treating herself for ages? Um, and parents aren't equipped with it and they don't have an understanding. And so they literally just watch their daughter deteriorate and probably end up in hospital. Um, and it's so hard for parents. Like parents are in just such this hopeless place. Like, I mean, even back 15 years ago when I had my eating disorder, there was a wait list there for the public service and I was on it. And my parents used to just ring in desperation, like, we need help. We need help. We're just watching our daughter just deteriorate and we don't want to lose her. So this is the real reality of a lot of people, um, whether you go public or private. And so people look to overseas. There's a place in America which people go to, which is residential, but you pay about $40,000 a month. Um, um, people do that because they're people, desperate, right? You don't want your daughter they to, do that. Or people, to die. People sell their houses. Like parents sell their houses. Like they take out loans. They do whatever they can. Um, so, yeah, it's this really hard place of treatment at the moment. Mm. 
for a lot of people. And so, uh, what, what, so uh, if you were if you were coming into be a government in Australia or New Zealand, what would you do? What would I do? It's a good question. I would be obviously funding, um, like putting money like in things like day programs and training professionals, like making sure they have proper training and proper ongoing supervision and making sure that they can see people long-term. I think another thing is people don't want to work in eating disorders because it's a hard field. Um, so that's the other thing. There is sometimes a lot of vacancies, but people just don't want to do it because it's a hard job. Um, and unless you have that kind of compassion, people don't do it. So there needs to be some sort of incentive for health professionals too sometimes. Um, yeah. What about your route to the, to, to the side? Because you describe yourself as a, as a coach, as a, and redefine, you describe yourself as a eating disorders coach. Mm. Tell us about yeah. that. What does that even yeah, mean? So how, do you, for how do you become one? How do you become one? Lots of different avenues. But I think for me, I mean, because both my sisters went through anorexia too, so it really hit our family hard. So I know what it's like to go through it and also be family members of those who are struggling and it just wreaks havoc in your family home. And so when I was in it, I found that there wasn't a lot of hope and I wanted to change that so I just became passionate about helping people with eating disorders so if I knew someone had eating disorder I'd literally just go have coffee with them and just talk to them and speak hope and just listen and be there and be like I get it um and then I went and trained I started working at NZDDC so I knew Kelly Lavender and then we had conversations and I went and got trained as a social worker um and did postgrad and child and adolescent mental health and then went and worked for the regional eating disorder service in Auckland so I was a clinical team member therapist there for three years three and a half years um and saw a lot um got to help a lot of people as well um but I was I always I probably couldn't help people in the way I wanted to help people like so we're doing all the formalized treatments which was awesome but I couldn't help people in the way of I wanted to be able to speak hope I wanted Sometimes it's felt like you set people up for a fail, especially if they were by themselves. It was like, cool, we've got goals, go home, do that, I'll see you next week. And it was mm. like, they're not going to be able to do that. And you're going to have the same conversation on repeat week after week after week. Um, and so sometimes even as a therapist, it felt a little bit hopeless. And so I was in a conversation with Kelly again, and I was like, how do you help people in a different way? And came up with this whole, like, we had heard of some coaching in other places overseas, and we are like, what like and I just created I sat down over like the summer I think it was like three months and just started creating what could be helpful for people um and so from my own personal experience what helped me I used to have a lady who I could call who had lived experience and I just clicked with her like that when I pushed I was horrible to my therapist my parents everyone but this lady <laughs> I trusted her because I knew she got it and I yeah. would listen so she was like you need to eat this I would just listen and I was like oh yeah 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 um and so it was like people who have been through it I was like that's so key people relate just like that instantly um and then a whole bunch of tools which helped me um and then I took principles from different therapies um and kind of all merged them all together and started coaching so it's this um I personally didn't think it was gonna go off <laughs> but I was like I'll try it um, so it's practical support for people. It's really tailored to the individual. So for some people that looks like practical support, so you've got your meal support or meal exposure, so practicing even eating out before social events so that they feel safer. 
than just going there. It's um, grocery shopping because people have so many behaviors in that and it can be this real anxiety provoking thing. It can be clothes shopping because obviously in recovery, people do have to put on weight. Um, and so that means getting bigger sizes. So it's helping them navigate the thoughts and the feelings in the moment. So there's all that kind of practical support, but then there's all this other support, which is hope-based. It's motivation work because you've got to have that greater purpose. It's learning how to thought challenge. It's learning how to separate your values from anorexias or the eating disorders and creating your own values. And then it's learning how to navigate the guilt, the anxiety, the fear, um, and all the different barriers as well as just being there. And like we do a lot of body image work too. Um, But it's also just being there to listen to people. And they just feel safe and it's a safe space to talk to. So that's how I started redefining coaching. And Which and, is redefining it really, isn't it? Because hmm. I'm hearing you say that you've you've taken what you liked about some of the conventional stuff and then you've added a, and integrated a whole bunch of things hmm. that you didn't like. Uh, yeah. Got rid of those ones and, and, and away you go. Yeah. And it's helping. It's really helped because when you're in it, you see recovery as this really negative thing. Everyone else sees it as good, but you see it as this horrible thing, like dark, yuck, life sucks on the other side of this, even though life sucks here, but it's going to be horrible. Um, So it's really helping people see their future in color in a way um, and really unpacking what could your future actually look like without this horrible thing and challenging them in it as well. Um, Because sometimes people are like, well, I can be skinny and I can still live. And it's like, well, actually, you've always got this horrible bully inside your head or you're constantly not present. or, And, yeah, it's redefining what their freedom looks like. And for a lot of people, there's a lot of aha moments and I want to fight now. Um, so, yeah, that's one part of redefine coaching. And then we do school talks. We run hope nights. Um, we educate people as well. So we train health professionals. So there's lots to it. It's just kind of growing over two and a half years. Um, so we have nine how do we, people. How do we scale you? How do you scale you then? Because um, that's a that's a a good question, right? Because mm. we've got a system that's utterly incapable of dealing with the scale of the problem, and then people yeah. only pop up. How do we scale that? Um, so I train a lot of health professionals um, because I get a lot of professional uh, professionals reach out to me and be like, I just don't understand, and I don't. I'm not equipped to help people, but I'm getting people with eating disorders sort of sit right in front of me. Um, as well as I have a lot of psychologists or counselors or social workers or occupational therapists who want to do what I do and they come to me. So I add training on, like I add training to them and then they start working as a coach as well. Because, um, yeah, we get but, people but, reaching but, out from How much does your lived, your lived experience set as as, as another whole layer, if you haven't had lived experience, what does that mean? Can you still help? A hundred percent. I think I have two people on team who don't have lived experience, but they've taken the time to understand. And yeah. so they a hundred percent can help and people find them really helpful. I think it's that empathy. People need empathy. They need compassion, but they also need people to be firm and help them change. Um, and not just to stay stuck in that whole, oh, I'm so sorry you're going through this, but actually let's change, which is what a coach is doing and all about. But people need to know that people understand and care. I think that's something which sometimes is missing in a therapist's role. And I, yeah, one thing I, I don't know about this, but I think maybe Netflix gives the word therapy a bad rap because you sort of mm. see the American version of that, which is a lot of looking back to 
to past events. Whereas when I think of coaching, I, I'm thinking about looking forward and moving to my best life. Is, that, yeah. is, is there a difference in language here or am I just making that up? Oh, I 100%. That's what I think of coaching too. It's yeah. like the how. How do we get you to where you actually really want to be? And what yeah. are the barriers? So sometimes you have to look back a little bit around some of those barriers to unpack them. But it's like, no, how do we move you forward? Which is the biggest thing. So, mm-hmm. so what are the, what but are for the some people, that... oh, I was going to say, like, the cool thing about being a coach too is <coughs> some people have had bad experience with therapists. And there's some amazing therapists out there, um, like incredible. But some people have had really bad experiences. So even with coaching, they're so hesitant to engage with me. But then I can be like, actually, just treat me like a big sister. And it's that more mentoring role. And they just engage instantly. So there was one girl who was told she was on someone's top 10 sickest people they've ever seen. And this is a well-known person. Um, And they just didn't think she could recover. But anyway, it took like five sessions to engage her. But then she's actually recovered and she's living her best life now, which is awesome. And it's not that life is ever perfect, but it's way better without an end sort of so. Yeah, I suppose the good thing about coaching is you're always going to meet people where they're at, mm. which is a, a good principle. So I suppose it's going to be. Hey, I've got, I've got a couple of other questions I want to wrap up with because I, and these are questions that I'm, I found confronting because often yeah. my work has not been in eating disorders. It's been the exact opposite of that. It's like we've got a, we've got a diet problem and a diet quality and quantity problem in, in Australia and New Zealand. And, um, it, that in itself causes some mental illness. It also causes cancer and diabetes and mm. vascular disease and stroke. So we'd like people to eat better. Um, <laughs> yet discussing that, there's always this little layer of going, well, are you going to inadvertently cause, by talking about healthy eating, um, a percentage of population, especially teenage girls, to um, to go into this eating disorder space. What do you think about that? Is that, is that, an, is that an issue? And if it is, what do we do about it? It is. I think sometimes, I think, because I actually think all of those messages are good messages and they're relevant to some people, right? Yeah. Um, to avoid diabetes or to actually help with depression or different yeah. things like that because yeah. there is, like, science around food and everything. But unfortunately, I think a lot of people who actually take those messages on are the people you don't want them like to take them on, which are people with things like anorexia. And unfortunately, what things like anorexia does is it literally just grabs any information it can grab, twists it, and then uses it against the individual. So I do think, I think maybe healthy eating needs to be redefined a bit. Um, And there's a dietitian, she says, um, there's no such thing. I think it's trying not to see things as so black and white. Like Mm -hmm. there's no such thing as good food or bad food. But actually there's some food which is more nutritious and some food which is less nutritious. But actually you should be including all foods. Um, And so it's just maybe some of the wording and the messaging around it. Because I think we grew up, we're like, well, this is good, this is bad. Um, but again, it's that tension because obviously people do need to be educated around healthy eating, but then it's the people who take it. Um, so I guess it's something to navigate, but something to be very aware of and careful of and maybe not try to make it so black and white. Yeah, it's interesting. I'll give you, we just had a, had a student do a study at the end of primary school where they just took some um, photos of all the kids' lunchboxes just to see, just trying to mm. understand what kids take to school in their lunches. And... Mm. It's, it's not that awesome because it's all 
highly packaged, highly processed food, very few nutrients in it, um, those sorts of things. So, so then you're left in a situation where you go, well, actually, these matchboxes aren't very good. We could do much better. We could have more fruits and or more whole foods, really. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, it's a, it's a it's a situation where society's got a pretty poor food supply and a pretty, I suppose, a pretty um, unrealistic explanation about how people should look. Um, you put those two yeah. things together, a bomb either way. You've got you've got an obesity problem one way, and you've got an eating disorder problem the other way. Yeah, and I think with any problem solving, there's always tensions, right? Yeah. Um, and there's always impact on someone. So I guess it's trying to educate. It's probably, I mean, a lot of the work we're doing is prevention work now around eating disorders. So it's actually educating people about eating disorders. Um, so I think and like how people actually become unwell and what they are and where to get help um, if you are struggling, but also around bullying and around body image and around weight. Because um, I actually think the food's not an issue, right? Um, if you're actually teaching people how to eat healthy, as well as including other foods too, because I think it's important to always not just be rigid, but also include. Um, but if we actually target the real thing around body image and bullying and trauma and all that sort of stuff, I think that's a whole other conversation itself and teaching people resilience and actually tools on how to navigate horrible thoughts and emotions instead of fixing their body. I think that's probably the massive niche. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I'm a real fan of acceptance commitment therapy. So when you talk about mm. navigating negative thoughts and emotions, when you talk about moving towards your best life, I'm I'm just going, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's my sort of uh, yeah toolbox. So uh, and so I think that's probably what needs to be targeted. Yeah. Mm. You talk about bullying. Let's talk about that. What are you meaning that it's your, your peer group? Who who's bullying who typically, and what does that look like? Yeah. So a lot of clients that I work with um, that come through Redefined were bullied around their weight or had comments around their weight or bullied in some way. And so they tried to change themselves um, they, to try and be accepted because everyone has a desire to belong and be accepted. Um, and so that's a real story for a lot of people. And I know a lot of people can be bullied and shake off comments and it's okay. But for some people who... Have eating disorders, they're probably more the sensitive type. Um, and they really take it on board and really take it personally. So I've got a, there's been people who we've worked with in their 40s and literally their anorexia started when they were 17 from bullying comments. And it's literally impacted their whole life. But it'd be um, like a Scott Schoolyard type thing. Is that, is that yeah. a typical sort of scene? Yeah. Yeah. My sister's eating disorder started um, through, there was a, it was just at school in the schoolyard um there was a hot list that these guys had created she was on it and then they kicked her off it and were like you're no longer hot um oh, and no. so yeah yeah and so for her that had a huge impact a simple thing that these guys did but it had a massive impact and it created this thought pattern and emotions and then she wanted to fix it so she engaged in trying to control those things with food and then developed anorexia which nearly took her life so it's very real for a lot of people. So I always include an anti-bullying message um, and changing the conversation like around people's weight and everything um, and the work we do. Oh, that's yeah. so perverse at so many levels. I mean, who wants to be on these losers list anyway in reality, you know? like if <laughs> Yeah, but as like a 14-year-old girl, you yeah. it's like this list and you're like, well, I made it or I didn't make it. I'm no longer good enough. 
people are judging me or, you know, all those sorts of different things. So, yeah. But, look, so many people, um, eating disorders don't discriminate. Anyone can struggle. There's bullying. People um, with autism can also get in, like have eating disorders because obviously that's that rigidity and everything too. Oh. So, yeah, lots of people struggle for lots of different reasons. But it's really about getting the right help so they can actually go on, like you say, and live their best life. Yeah. That's awesome. How do we find and redefine and what other channels are we going to see you on? Yeah, so if you go to redefinedcoaching.co, um, that's online. Um, and people can put in a form submission, um, whether that's for training health professionals or coaching or school talks or anything like that, um, as well as we're on Instagram. And our message on Instagram is mainly around hope and people's stories, um, which is just redefine coaching so people can look that up. That's awesome, Jess. Thanks so much. Um, I've learned so much. So uh, hopefully oh, we can just keep, so keep moving forward with this. You've been listening to... Preventionist Cure, brought to you by Precure.com, with me, Professor Grant Schofield.